What is up, good people? I'm Brandon T. Maxwell, one-third of the irreverently holy trinity that makes up the holy shit pod. Today, Pastor Sam, Katie, and I kick off Mental Health Awareness Month by sharing a little bit of our own mental health autobiographies. Listen in, it's going to be a great episode. And as always, you can email holyshit at theolabmedia.com if you have topics you'd like us to discuss or questions you want answered. Happy Mental Health Awareness Month, fam. Call your therapist if you ain't talked to them in a while. And let's get into it. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Praise the Lord, all ye people. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Be thankful unto them and bless their name. This is the day the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Welcome back to the church of holy shit and the temple of all the saints and the eights. Mm. Are you going to provide our opening selection, Sam? Are you the praise leader today? I was going to defer to Katie today on the singing. He was just giving the organ note. Give us I, some ubi caritas. Yeah, <laughs> give us some, uh, he's got the whole world. Come on, Yeah, Katie. yeah, yeah, yeah. Give us some white stuff. Come on. <laughs> Oprah sang that thing. She said, he's, he's got, got the whole world. Y'all ain't see that clip of Oprah. And that's exactly how she sounded, like a... I know it. In his hands, he's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got... I said, Oprah, what are you doing, girl? I, it's, that's a really hard song to sing because I don't sing he in music. And so it's God's got, got the world. They've got the whole world oh, they. Hey, in their hands. Give us a selection, Karen. People want to hear you sing. I sang last time. I sang um, Call Me By My Name, which is a little <laughs> version of a little offshoot of Lil, Lil, Lil Nas X. You worked on that thing. I did. I did. Well, it's good to see y'all today. We got a few church announcements. The Angel Food Ministry wants you all to know that it is hosting a canned food drive. You can bring all of your canned goods and non-perishables to the fellowship hall after either 8 or 11 o'clock service. And the Mother's Board, who sponsors the Angel Food Ministry, would like you all to know that this year they would prefer if you didn't bring the old, dusty, crusty, rusty <laughs> canned goods from the back of your pantry. They want only fresh, new goods. Fresh they said don't food. bring the store brands. I'm so they tired. Said, don't bring the shit you already <laughs> opened and you act like you didn't know. Bring the real stuff with the name brands on the front. And the reason they want you to bring the fresh goods is because they are trying to model for the United States how not <laughs> to give other countries your sloppy seconds. <laughs> Have y'all heard of what the United States is doing for India? Y'all know India has like cases skyrocketing in terms of COVID-19 and like they're just through the roof. So the United States is now sending to them the AstraZeneca vaccine that we said we want to purchase a lot of, but don't want to use it because it may not be quite safe. And that's exactly what that is, Brandon. Like it's literally you going in your kitchen cabinet. And I, let me tell you, I ain't going to say we all have done it because I don't want to speak for everybody. But I know we all have done it. Uh, 
I mean, I won't say that I haven't done it, but I will say my pantry is typically empty, so I always got to go get it now, at the store. Now, when you, even if it's back when you was a teenager and they said bring two canned goods to school, you ain't go to Walmart, you ain't go to Kroger, your daddy's, well, your daddy owned the, your daddy owned the grocery store, so maybe. But he didn't sell canned goods. I brought them dusty-ass peaches that they tried to put in my lunch that I didn't want. And let me tell y'all something. Canned goods do expire, people. Y'all just <laughs> reach it in the back of the cab. There is an expiration date on canned goods. Y'all trying to give somebody botulism. That's exactly what the U.S. <laughs> is trying to do. Given these old vaccines that's been sitting on the shelf, we don't even know what the shelf life of this stuff is. But they're going to package it all, send it to India because, you know, hey, you know, we ain't going to give it to our people, but we'll give it to India. And I feel some kind of way about that since my wife is Indian. But she's also from South Africa, right? Potato, potato. Yeah, that actually (laughs) is a difference. (laughs) She is Indian. She is not South African. She is Indian. But I hear what you're saying. I mean, I I get it. Like, I I guess that you can, just in the same way that, like, white people feel solidarity with black people when, like, black people are dying and they say, you know, my child that I adopted is black. Your wife, who doesn't live in India, but was raised, born and raised in South Africa, who happens to be culturally, ethnically Indian, you feel solidarity with the Indian people because your wife, who never has lived there, also is Indian. I get it. Don't don't treat the Indian people bad. I just cannot like, believe you going in on Sam's wife like that. He's a bastard. He's a bastard. <laughs> just like <laughs> if they were oppressing black people somewhere else in the world, I'm they black. They black. We talk about pan-Africanism. They black. I don't care where they at. They black. Well, I mean, I agree with you. I'm just giving you shit. Even about the vaccines, it took way too long for us to send anything. I think we're sending oxygen now. We're sending some other supplies that can help. We're sending oxygen. Yeah, like there's oxygen creators. I don't know what they're called. Somebody who's medical would understand. (laughs) 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 Why y'all complicating this shit, man? (laughs) Y'all trying to send oxygen and there's some trees outside. Why y'all sending oxygen to the people? I'm I'm playing. We've caused part of this problem by saying that we're not going to export any of the materials that other countries can use for vaccines. And Mm. then it took us to be shamed by other countries to even send, um, I think (laughs) they're not trees, but they're some kind of oxygen generators and other kind of medical supplies because people are being turned away. Um, people are using the same ventilator. Like they have two people attached to the same ventilator. Their infection rate was following everybody else's. We kind of had a big dip, but there's just, boom, went up exponentially. And because we've done this America first thing, sadly to say, even under Joe Biden, it it's preventing the rest of the world from getting better as well, which impacts us. It absolutely impacts us. The pandemic, folks, is far from over. We know that over half of the adults in the United States have received at least one dose of COVID-19, yet and still the global problem issue persists. So folks, stay safe because we aren't out of this thing yet and we never know how this will morph in the coming months due to the ways in which it wasn't handled well in the earliest days of the pandemic. And that's what I was just about to say. Let us not forget where Mm -hmm. we were Uh just just over 100 days ago. Like, don't get cocky. Let's, let us not forget that we have made some progress, that we still trying to get out of this American first thing. I think I just read about aid that we're sending to multiple different places. Like, it's, it is unfortunate that India is where they are right now. And America ha- has not been in the position that they 
generally are in or have been in, in in the past to offer aid and assistance to other countries because of the Neanderthal that was in office prior to <laughs> Joe Biden. Neanderthal. That is just disparaging to the Neanderthals. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> Do not talk about Neanderthals uh, like that. But um, I ain't gonna forget. Never forget. I was reading the AOC. If you all are listening and don't know who that is, shame on you. She said that they believe that Biden has basically surprised them. He's done more than they thought he was going to do. Well, that's impressive coming from her. Uh, some people might think that. Some people might be like, ah, she don't know what the hell she's talking about. Mm-hmm. Like Brandon. Our next announcement comes from the state of California. The state of California would like to let you know it is interested in declaring the pulpit vacant. Some bullshit. In a campaign to oust Governor Gavin Newsom. And I'm sorry, I typically don't do white men anymore. But Gavin's a cutie. Gavin is fine, honey. I'm looking at these pictures of Gavin like, wait a minute, let me find out. He's trying to be a little silver fox these days, be a little zaddy. But anyway, that's not the point. Apparently in California, there is a caveat in the law that after an election, if you can get 12% of the people who voted in the election to sign a petition, essentially, saying that they want to recall the election, that that can result in a recount. So Republicans had an extra 30 days to do this this year due to the pandemic, and they got the votes needed to call for a recall in the state of California that is going to cost $4 million when the guy's already up for re-election in the next couple of years. And so Caitlyn Jenner may be the next governor in California. Oh, God. So tell me how this works, <laughs> Katie, because it sounds like some white people would know about. It's some white, this is some white people shit, ain't it? 12% of the people can recall a governor can recall the results of an election. The results of an election, which in this case is a governor. Right. And and by by law, by rule, his name cannot appear on the on the next ballot. Is that correct? During the recall election? That's what I was reading. Like, I think I said by rule, he's not his name is not permitted to be on the recall ballot election. Like, how can 12% of the population overturn? The results of an election, Katie. This, Katie, Katie, that's a question for you. It's like one point one. The requirement was one point four million people. Do you know how big California is? That's some white people shit. I, I've heard that you have placed the entire white people population of the world onto my um, responsibility, but I well, like, we can't speak for them. Only my only my fourth great grandfather was white. That's the only white I got in my family, as far as I know, on my daddy's side. They only married into my family. That's all the way I got it. But it, look, my my white family member is actually black, so I don't care. I'm trying to. F- <laughs> I don't understand the part about the he can't have his name on the ballot. That I have to figure out. I do not know why in this day and age, with all of this going on, that they would be willing to spend four million dollars to recall him, and the only person they have to run is Caitlyn Jenner. I mean, they didn't even have anybody to run. No, no, no. There are tons of names on the ballot already. There's tons of people. But Caitlyn Jenner is just the most high-profile person. So in the recall election, voters have two questions they have to answer. The first question is, should Newsom be recalled? And then the second question is, who should replace him? So the votes on the second question will only be counted if more than half of the population says yes to the first. Okay, that makes sense. So... So that's why his name wouldn't be on the second question because really he's already been elected and we're trying to figure out now, do we rescind or recall Uh, the election to the public office of governor? 
so then my question is, would that other list of people, would that also include Democrats? Would the Democrats also run people in there or would their focus be on getting Newsom to maintain office? I see what your question is. So I would assume a both and strategy. This is highly unlikely to actually go anywhere. I mean, think about California and the way that the right. population is configured and how blue that state is historically. Not to say that this couldn't happen, but just mm-hmm. the idea is that it's never going to happen because it's just ridiculous and far-fetched. And this highly unlikely that more than half of the population would say that Gavin Newsom should actually be recalled. So uh, the pulpit will likely not be declared vacant and Gavin Newsom will likely survive this, but it is happening right now as we speak and we'll see what happens. Yeah. I think the last time that a governor was recalled in California, Arnold Schwarzenegger became Arnold the governor. Schwarzenegger. So it's it's actually quite possible some crazy shit can happen and Caitlyn Jenner is the next governor of California. I have no understanding of a person who is trans identifying with the Republican Party who is actively passing trans, like anti-transgender, Correct. anti-LGBTQ, anti-black legislation, right and left. Speaking of which, our last church announcement is brought to you by the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court of the United States wants everybody and their mamas to know that scripture that y'all read and that Bible that you claim to believe, they don't believe it's true. And they're proving that with their actions. You know that scripture? It, I don't think this is actually a scripture. I think this is actually just black people. What's done to the dark will come to light. <laughs> I wasn't going to make that, put that in the Bible. That's, that's gospel, son. I don't know what you're talking about. That's the gospel of black people. So the Supreme Court wants everybody to know that in spite of what y'all been saying for years, what's done to the dark will come to light, that that shit ain't true. They are actively working in the shadows to rewrite the Constitution. While we're all focused on the pandemic and we're all focused on George Floyd and we're all focused on the trial and we're all focused on all of these things that demand our attention, require our attention, they are actively in the background restructuring the shape of the American political economy. Well, a couple of weeks ago, the Supreme Court, by a 5-4 vote, issued an emergency injunction blocking California's COVID-19-based restrictions on in-home gatherings on the ground that they interfere with religious practice. That's a lot, right? So we're sitting here and the Supreme Court is now meddling in state politics to override safety precautions because of the pandemic on the grounds of sort of religious liberty claims, right? Um, They want to make sure that religious groups have the space to gather in homes in spite of what the best guidance from the CDC says. Have y'all heard about this? I I, I read about it in the New York Times. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry to get it. This Supreme Court is going to upset me. And if they don't reform the court and pack the court, however you want to say it, I'm going to be highly upset. And, you know, Joe Manchin need to kick rocks. He need to have a cardiovascular experience. Uh Oh, Sam's back to killing people. The Grim Reaper need to take his ass. He need to go. And well, maybe not because then he might be replaced with a Republican. But I mean, that's not much different than he is. Because he's basically said not going to let it happen. I also think that a lot of this has to do with like a concerted Republican effort to really fuck over Gavin Newsom. Like at the end of the day, people are already looking at 2024 and thinking about who's going to run. Most people assume that Kamala Harris won't be the front runner in 2024, that it's going to be another probably straight white man. And Gavin Newsom is likely a contender for that. I mean, he looks the part because he, again, aesthetically is pleasing to certain types of minds and eyes socialized by whiteness. And (laughs) he... Technically kicked ass. No. What? 
You're absolutely crazy if you think that Kamala Harris won't be the standard bearer for the Democratic Party in 2024. So she's the standard bearer versus being the front runner. And the nominee. She won't be the nominee. She will not be the nominee. She will. No, she will not. She will. The U.S. still hates black people too much. There's no way they're going to put her on there. She's a sitting vice president. They might, she, I mean, she might not win. That might be what you're saying might play out in the way that the election plays out. But she's a sitting vice president who's going to end up by the end of their term being, being actually quite popular with their base. Um, there's no way that she's not on the ticket. In, in the top of the ticket. She may be on the ticket again as the vice president, but I doubt that she's in the president's spot on the ticket. She will be. Do you want to place a bet? Yeah. I'm, I feel really confident about that. And it's not that I don't want her to be. It's the reality that it's not going to happen. I think that the Democrats are too traumatized. We put Joe Biden on the ticket in 2020. We put Joseph Robinette Biden on the ticket. You said yourself, Joseph was the only one that could win. You oh. said yourself. Oh. You said you said that. I'm or, I, and, no, 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 no. Let me let me let me walk that back. Go I don't ahead. think you said he was the only one that could win. I think you said he was the only one that could do basically what needed to be done, like against Trump, because of the way Trump was. I said that this my, my my argument was, and I may have said it this differently, but my argument was that this particular historical moment wouldn't yeah. allow anyone other than Joseph Correct. Biden Correct. to be sitting in that seat, and that was Correct. the only way that the Democrats stood a chance of defeating Donald Trump. Yep. And and that's not because Elizabeth Warren wasn't amazing. Uh, correct. I know. I know. That was my candidate. Period. Point blank. Period. But mm -hmm. what I knew is that America wasn't ready for it. And that if you put Elizabeth Warren in that seat, she would be polarizing in a way that rallied the Trump base and Trump would have been the president again in 2021. That's my humble opinion. I believe in the same way America still isn't ready for a woman and or a black woman at that and or a black and Southeast Asian black woman to be the president of the country. I think that maybe in another eight to 10 to 16 years, <laughs> that they may be ready for yeah. that. But I have a hard time believing that you get Joe Biden, who actually is the most progressive president we've had in American history, even surpassing Barack Obama. Barack but, Obama, right. But who, but who manages his government in a way that makes it seem, this is all moderate. What do you mean? Yeah, we, we got to love black people. Yeah, we got to pass police reform. Yeah, we got to do this stuff for LGBTQ folks. This is These are moderate claims. Like, he manages to do that in a way. I think that it's doing more than a, a person who is black and or embodied as a woman could do in this particular moment in America's political history. I think you underestimate the Democratic Party's need to pander to certain subsets of its population. And because I think there's there's either two fights that they have to fight is the one that you're talking about saying we don't feel like America's ready for this woman of Southeast Asian descent who's black and all of this stuff. Or you you run the risk of losing a huge part of your base by not putting this person on the ticket. But they're not going to lose them. They're going to go vote for Trump? Where are they going to go? It ain't that they will go vote for the other party. They'll be like, I ain't showing up for this shit. Like, how how in the world do you have a woman who uh, ran for president once, has become the vice president, has served in the administration, if she wants to be, if she wants to run on the ticket and the party basically reaches over her for a white man, I think you're going to get a, a huge response and you're going to see it in voter turnout. I think that you underestimate how forgiving black people are. 
look, look at our history. Black people forgive a lot of shit. We might rage. We might be get angry. And I'm and I don't like speaking in generalized terms about black people. So when I say black people, I mean black folks that I know. My particular perspective is that we had a black president that that is Barack Hussein Obama, and that now we have a black woman as the vice president. If it's an all white ticket in the next presidential election. We'll still vote for them because who else are we going to vote for? And I do think that in this particular season, Trump is still going to be a factor and his ideology is still going to be a factor. And black folks ain't going to vote for that shit. So the calculation that Democrats are going to make is, okay, out of the 13, 14 percent of the country that is black, could we still get 7 percent or so of those individuals to vote for us? Great. Let's get somebody who will appeal to the middle. And let's vote that person in. And it won't be them reaching over Kamala Harris. It'll be the will of the people. And that's in ear quotes for listeners who can't see us picking the candidate. No, I'm willing. I'm willing to place a bet on this. How much you want to bet? You set the amount. I don't care because you're wrong. And you think you're always right. But your ass always wrong. I'm sick of you. I put 500 on this. I put 500 on it too. Put 500 on the Katie. Shit. Write that shit down. 500 that... That Kamala Harris is or is not going to be at the top of the ticket? 500, yes. And my bet is that she will not be at the top of the ticket. 500. My bet is if she wants to be, she will be. Oh, you're going to add a, you're going to add, make it a conditional statement. What you mean if she want to be? That's what she want to be. Because you're, cause your statement is basically saying whether she wants to be or not, these white folks ain't going to let her be. They're going to put a white person over her. I, I, I agree with Brandon, but I ain't got $500 to throw around. That's basically what Brandon's argument is. I agree with that completely. <laughs> My argument is that the general public is going to pick someone who is not Kamala Harris, whether or not she wants to be the president. Exactly. Okay. So 500. Okay. You all heard it here, folks. When we get to 2023 and we have a nominee, y'all make sure that y'all put it in the comments and in the reviews and on the Facebook and on Instagram that Sam owe me 500. That's if Joe Biden isn't. Running again. Oh, he adding extra conditions in the well, shit Well, that now. seems like a reasonable condition. <laughs> but he said he was only going to be a one-term president. I'm going to step in there. What's going to happen is, is we'll get there and Biden will be running again. He's going to be like, nope, you see it. <laughs> but I also caught that shit. I caught that on that last podcast we don't talk about no more. Like, I said that once Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. got his butt in the seat of power, that he was going to start liking that shit and wasn't going to want to give it up in four years. He already talking about re-election, you know. I, I hope he makes it. He going he gonna to make it. Why? He got the best medical care created now. He the fucking president. He going to live to be 3,000. That's only a couple more years. Did <laughs> <laughs> she know? Because they share a birthday. Shut up. This was a major <laughs> rabbit trail, but it was a fun one to chase. The original announcement was that the Supreme Court is working to fuck shit up actively in the background. And I do think that is going to play a role in the next election. We already see what is happening. Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., I'm committed to calling his full name every time, has already indicated that he is launching this court reform committee that's going to have all these professors and legal scholars and Republicans and Democrats. And I think it's already in progress going on for the you know next 180 days or the 180 days after he announced it. And so we'll see if he actually implements any court reform in the future. But the Supreme Court is fucking shit up right now. And this is why the midterms are so important. And it is why why the next election will continue to be important. Not that we place all of our hopes and our dreams on any political system, but that does impact the daily lives of black and brown people. As we've seen, regardless of who's in power, black folks still going to get shot in the street. But we need people who are going to try to at least respond in a manner that isn't vitriolic 
and even more hateful and racist than what we see on a daily basis, a.k.a. the, what you call them, Nimrod? Neanderthal. Neanderthal. We're going to take a quick break and we will be right back in a very short moment to discuss mental health. So May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and it is a month where we pause to make sure that everyone in the world is aware of mental health resources and the challenges that some people experience with the lack of resources for mental health. Um, And it's just a time where we really work to debunk the stigma around seeking out mental health assistance where needed. It was first celebrated in 1949 by an organization called Mental Health America and then known as the National Association for Mental Health. And so it's May, and we're going to be talking about this all month. Initially, we plan to kick this off with a discussion about purity culture, but we're going to save that discussion for next week. And then the week after that, we're going to talk about the episode that's going to be my favorite called Get Out, Us, and Them, How Art Imitates Black Existence and Trauma. Katie is really scared to finish watching this show. She made it like three minutes in, and I was like, you could never live as a Black person. That is not true. I made it 45 minutes in, but I'm really going to try in two weeks to, but I'm going to need lots of mental health resources. Which which show is this? Get Out, Us, or Them? them. Cat in the Bag. Don't do it. Sorry. Not today, say. Cat in the Bag. That's what she said. Cat in the Bag. But I just cat get the bag. Cat in the Bag. Cat in the Bag. <laughs> Like that shit was crazy, but like we'll talk about that in two weeks. So if you haven't yet watched it, go ahead and watch it now so that we don't have any spoilers that mess up the show for you. I think you need to give a disclaimer uh, for these people who might be watching. I think Brandon and I can watch stuff like that and, it, and you know, we watch it and it's not a huge thing. It feels like life. I've seen so many people that's like, I, I cannot continue watching this. Like, yeah. You need a trigger warning, Brandon. I can't do suspense in general. But pause. I'm going to be messicated. You know, I'm, I'm a little messy. Katie's scary in general. But Katie was scared because the motherfucker killed the dog. Oh, no, I'm not talking about that. I think you need a trigger warning for black folks. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying, like, Katie's scared because the motherfucker grabbed the dog and threw it in the basement. I'm like, <laughs> you scared about the damn dog? They didn't even hurt the black people yet. <laughs> I thought she, he had the girl, oh though. But I had to slam my iPad shut so I couldn't see what was going on because it was scary. There's a person in their house. That's what be happening with these murders of black people in the streets. White folks be like, I can't watch. I can't watch. It must have been the... No, it wasn't that. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't that. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) This was like, she walks out and there's like some crazy, like really gigantic human in that or something in their house. That's scary. It's it's the ghost of white supremacy. Let me tell y'all, we're laughing and we're very comical people. Uh, but this is not a comedy. No, and in no shape, form, or fashion. <laughs> you're going to have to be ready. You're going to have to be ready not. when you watch this. Katie don't even know. She just watched 45 Minutes she, and the dog died. She no don't even clue. know what the, where this is about to go. But that's so, not where we're going oh, today. Oh we're focusing gosh. on our own mental health autobiographies and our relationships to mental health. So to get started, I want to just maybe have each of us share briefly about our own journeys um, with mental health, seeking that out and where needed and whatever you're willing to share. The working assumption is probably that the white woman's the only one who sought out mental health because y'all are the ones who talk about it most frequently. But that's not the case. We all are aware of our mental health concerns and needs and want to talk about that openly. But just for once, let's go ahead and lean into the stereotype. Karen, talk to us about your journey. 
so briefly trying to talk about why mental health journey is challenging, but I will start. I think um, the things that stand out in my life are, first of all, we didn't talk about mental health stuff a lot. Like therapy was when my parents were having arguments or when my brother and father were having explosive relationships. And it was something I had kind of a stigma against. At the same time, when I was in eighth grade, I had suicidal feelings. Um, and I didn't get help for it then. I'm obviously alive. I, I don't know how I made it through, but I, I attribute that to God. But I didn't really think about mental health again until I was in seminary and the kind of all of my myths and understandings of the world were being shattered um, when I was being denied a place in my home. And then I sought out therapy and have been in therapy for a very long time. And once I realized that therapy was something that worked, I've been very open about being in therapy. Um, Some people don't talk about it, but I feel like it's really important to talk about so that it reduces the stigma. When I left seminary and went into my first job and like I was spiraling down and that was the first time where I started antidepressants. And I also went through a really bad bout of postpartum depression and UNC where my daughter was born has a great postpartum depression clinic and received great help there. And again, um, I've gone on and off antidepressants a number of times and have finally in the past couple of years gone, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this again. And and I was really wrestling with the stigma associated that, with that myself. So I think therapy, medicine, spiritual direction, and working out are all things that contribute to my health and well-being. That's a very brief statement on it. Um, I can certainly talk about details, but, but what I've learned, A, is that, um, that I've had to wrestle with my own stigma about it. B, once I became comfortable with it and knew that I needed help, I also saw it as my calling to share that with other people. And I will say that the pandemic has been really hard because it's taken away some of my typical ways of coping with things. So, I mean, and we'll dig into some of that. I mean, because that's a lot, Karen, Teresa Riggs. So we'll unpack some of this as we continue to progress because there are a lot of questions to tease out. For for your sake, listeners, we wanted to locate ourselves so that you know what we're bringing to the table and we're not having any of these conversations over the course of the next month as an abstraction or just a concept that isn't personal for us yeah. as well. Sam, what about you? I think bullying was a significant part of my adolescent journey uh, when I was younger. People called you big. Of course. I mean, I've been I've been big all my life. So am I am I like telling my life story? Your mental health journey briefly. <laughs> that is my life story. I think a lot has contributed to my current mental health, but it goes back to childhood. It goes back to um, abuse in childhood. It goes back to bullying in childhood. It, it goes back to my parents separation in childhood in the absence of my dad in the house which I won't just say the absence of my dad in the house, but the absence of my dad's consistent present in my life. And a lot of these things, like I really didn't know affected my mental health until later in life. I'm realizing it's like you, you do things that are toxic or not normal, but you've normalized those things. And so you don't know that they're not normal or you don't know that these are things that are significantly impacting your everyday existence. Yep. Um, and it wasn't until I was in seminary as well that I was like, I felt like I needed some type of self-care. I felt like I wasn't taking care of myself. Um, and it's interesting because it wasn't like a as much as a physical thing at this particular part in my life. 
I had lost tremendous amount of weight, like almost 100 pounds I, I had dropped. I was actually probably physically the healthiest I had ever been in my adult life, but I wasn't healthy. Mm-hmm. And I sought out counseling and therapy uh, while I was a seminary student. It was free. And that became a part of my self-care. And it was in in those sessions that I realized I got a lot of shit. Like I'm carrying a lot of bags. I'm the bag lady in Erica Badu's song. And I was like, I got to let some of this stuff go. I have my own beliefs about how much we can actually let go, but I need to deal with and process some of these things. Um, Because on some level, I believe these things always live with you. I will never be able to erase the trauma that I experienced through the physical abuse that I experienced as a child. That's going to always live with me on some level. But I have been able to process that. I have been able to deal with that um, to a certain extent, which which helps it not be as toxic for me as if I just never, ever addressed it or ever dealt with it. Yeah. And so counseling and therapy has helped me to be able to do, to do that, to, to look at all of these things that have affected me or traumatized me and to begin to process them. And it's an ongoing process. So it's going to be something that continues to, to need to be, to be dealt with. And so seminary was really helpful for me in being able to understand the importance of caring for yourself and seeking or prioritizing your mental health? Yeah. So my mental health journey is a strange one. I think that it's kind of a wandering type of journey. What I'm aware of today is I've had ADHD all of my life without the hyperactivity component, at least physical hyperactivity. But mentally, I'm definitely hyperactive and my brain is always moving and always running and always going. And I spent so much of my life living with ADHD and not knowing it because of some of the things about how mental health is stigmatized in Black communities and I think in Southern communities and just more broadly around the world. But the more categories you have, oftentimes the more of the stigma or the weight of the stigma is increased by those categories and identifiers. So for me, my ADHD manifested in ways that were celebrated by society. I made good grades. I spoke well. I also figured out what it meant to have social intelligence Mm -hmm. and use that as a benefit and a way to accommodate my sort of ADHD. And so I think for me, it's in hindsight that I'm able to say so much of my journey was about me being ADHD and that being undiagnosed, but also me learning how to navigate the world and cope with that on my own in the absence of a connection with a therapist or a psychiatrist to provide me medicine along with that. Another part of my journey that I can only acknowledge in hindsight is that I was and am a black gay man and I've been black and gay all of my life. I say that I'm 95% gay and oftentimes I'll embrace the label of queer to honor the complexity of my sexual history and the fact that I spent a significant amount of my time trying to force myself to be heterosexual. I like to say that I wrestled with heterosexuality, not that I wrestled with my sexuality or with homosexuality because people like to say you struggle with homosexuality. No, I struggled with heterosexuality and that also was shaping and forming my existence in my childhood and learning what it meant to hide that part of myself and learning what that meant to perform heterosexuality, perhaps not so convincingly in hindsight, but I at least tried to do those things. And so, so much of my mental health was 
navigated in private. I wouldn't quite say in secret. Uh, Perhaps with my sexuality, yes, but my sexuality was kept secret and the mental health needs related to that were navigated in private because I didn't know that I could go see a therapist, like a childhood therapist. I had no Mm -hmm. idea what that was. And it's really only been in the last five years when I married a human who is a mental health practitioner who's been able to say, have you ever seen somebody about ADHD? And I'm like, no. Do you think you might have it? No. And then I like go online and do an ADHD assessment. I'm like, oh my God, this is why it was so hard to read. This is why I had a headache every time I wrote. This is why it took me two weeks to write a sermon because I couldn't focus. And like seeking out a psychiatrist who could prescribe me medicine is like, oh my God, like what could I have done if I wasn't always so stressed out and exhausted because I was trying to cope with the number and the pace of the thoughts that were floating around in my head. And we're also now discovering that I probably am a little bit on the autism spectrum. Um, (laughs) And I'm reading more about what that means because so when I first got with my partner, he would be like, it seems like you are a drastically different person depending on the people that we're with. And I said, yeah, I'm mirroring their behaviors. Like, I'm just mirroring what they're giving me. And he's like, oh, this is why people like you because you're just giving them themselves back. And even for him, he was like, this is why I fell in love with you because you were mirroring me back to me. <laughs> but then <laughs> but then you move in together and it's like, I don't feel a need to mirror anything anymore. You know who I am. But really, you don't because I've been mirroring you back to you the entire time. And so understanding like how that has shaped my life and then talking with a therapist about all of these things and how they have shaped me and formed the human that I am in the world today and figuring out how... I develop a more intimate relationship with that history and that story and then become proactive in attempting to heal the parts of me that need to be healed and embrace this not as a judgment or a bad thing, something that needs to be done in secrecy or private because of the stigma, but something that I can talk about publicly so that other people can also figure out what their stories are and how they navigate their own mental health history. So speaking of which, we've talked a lot about stigma. We've each kind of alluded to that. But wait, before we go into that, talk about your narcissism. I do not have narcissistic personality disorder (laughs) at all. If you know what... I was going to say, if he just mirrors things, I'm like, if you're an ass to me all the time, does that mean that I'm an ass? I don't think so. No, you're not. (laughs) No, I really try to tell people like, but I'm giving you the same energy. No, no, absolutely not. No, absolutely so. Absolutely not. Absolutely so. You are so mean to Katie. Katie is hardly ever giving you bad energy. On the episodes, on the podcast, you should see what she texts me. I know you all outside of the podcast. I'm going to start, I'm going to start screenshotting the text messages that she sends me. She (laughs) sends me every text that she sends you. She do. And just, just for the sake of you not lying on her. Maybe the issue is both of y'all are assholes. Maybe that's what the issue is. <laughs> but no. So talking about stigma, how did you learn that there was a stigma about mental health? Or when did you become aware of the stigmas around mental health? I think for me, it was uh, in my undergraduate psychology class. Like, just to be honest, you know, it wasn't before that. I experienced it, but didn't really have the vocabulary to to understand what it was, especially when you grow up in like this Christian evangelical household where Jesus was the answer to every problem, you know? And I mean, even today, my mom doesn't know that I've been diagnosed with ADHD. ADD, ADHD, yeah. I think of the history is that they've merged those two terms now and you either have the hyperactivity or don't. Okay, okay. And so when I first was diagnosed, it wasn't merged. It wasn't merged. And it was just ADD for me. So my mom doesn't know that I've been diagnosed with ADD. 
ADD and I take meds for ADD. But if she did, she'd be like, what is that? That ain't nothing. That's just, a, that's a spirit, you know. That's the devil. You just need to rebuke the devil and, and call on Jesus. Is that why you haven't told her? I haven't told her because I firmly believe in privacy, especially around medical issues, and that's not her business. Okay. Even with your mother... Even with my mom, man, you don't know my mama. See, your mama works in the medical field. And I don't want you to. I want you to understand that when when you're talking about medical things, it might be a little different. It's not because she has she has some understanding of some medical things. Like because my mom doesn't, she will assume that she's right about everything. And the frustration is she doesn't know anything about anything medical, anything about mental health, nothing. Yeah. But she'll tell you Jesus alone is the answer and you need to call on Jesus and stop taking this stuff. So I take another medication for my blood pressure, right? And I think my mom read an article. I don't even think she read an article. My mom don't read articles. <laughs> I think she, she heard something from somewhere about something about this particular drug. Now, I've been taking this drug for years, I take multiple drugs for my blood pressure because I have chronically high blood pressure. When she found out I was sick, she was like, you need to stop it right now. Don't take it. Don't take it. No more people. These folks are dying. I was like, they might be dying. I have not had any adverse reaction and it is actually helping to regulate my blood pressure. I might die <laughs> if I stop taking it, you know. Right. But to this day, she, and, you know, I won't tell her that I haven't stopped because she'll be like, you better stop taking it. You're going to die. And I'm like, okay, no, nah, we're we not having this conversation. So family contributes to stigma. Definitely. Family definitely contributes to stigma. Mm -hmm. Thank you for bringing me back because I went. You chased a rabbit there. That little ADHD came back and hit you. It was a related rabbit, though. It was. Uh, <laughs> and so that's, that's a part of the stigma for me in my context and my family. Religion certainly contributes to it in the context that we were brought up. Now, re religion doesn't always have to contribute to it. But for us here in the South, in Alabama, in evangelical circles and households, stigma certainly certainly contributes to it. Uh, religion certainly contributes to stigma. Katie, is that your testimony too? Yeah, well, not the religion part. I think that it's interesting. My mom uh, is a retired pastoral counselor, so she was all into counseling and, and such, but has a real stigma assigned to medicine. And when I was trying to get pregnant, I started learning about the medical history of my family and realized that all the women on my mom's side of the family have episodic depression or sustained depression. I was like, goodness gracious, why aren't we talking about this? Like I could have sought out help sooner. And I think that this kind of stigma about medicine contributed to me coming on and off medicine multiple times because I was feeling like, oh, I should be able to take care of this myself. I should be stronger or something like that. And so you're right in the yoga doing, caramel macchiato drinking kind of white woman world, therapy is approved of and is just part of the standard fare for white women. But like real trauma and real struggles and medicine still um, hold a, a stigma. And I certainly struggle with that in my own family as well. I think that's interesting, Katie, because you, you specifically talked about medicine and that was something I talked about as well. But I'm, I'm, I'm realizing that a lot of things around mental health 
were stigmatized in the communities that I grew up in, medicine being one, but also like counseling and therapy, unless you were getting it from the pastor. And that's why I feel like this thread of of religion is woven Mm -hmm. into the stigma that I experienced growing up. Right. And so if you're actually going to see a psychologist or a therapist or a psychiatrist to deal with issues that stigmatize, like people feel like you got a problem, like I can work through my own stuff. I don't need to go see nobody, you know. And so how much of that is family? How much of that is religion? How much of that is like ego? How much is that is these black men who are full of pride and, you know, whatever brand is full of, you know, how 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 much of it is that? I've learned about this thing called deflection and projection. Two separate <laughs> things. Have you have, have you seen your therapist recently and talked about those two terms? Yeah, I have. I thought you said you weren't in therapy. Let me tell you, the white people hear what they want to hear. It's so crazy. I know somebody who can give you some good recommendations. But no, I think for me, like there was a stigma around it in my family for sure. And even today, so I'm not like you, Sam. I'm not one, like if I'm seeking out assistance, I want everybody to know about it. Consider it my evangelical impulse. And so like, I'm sitting here like, mama, I got ADHD. And they say that women got it. Like this is, this shit's genetic. Do you think you got ADHD? And I'm sitting there trying to help. But how does your mom respond? Well, when I first saw her, she said, ain't nothing wrong with you, boy. And then, but so my younger brother also has ADHD. And so it's highly likely that one of my parents has ADHD because both of us have it. But when Braxton um, was a kid and actually got on ADHD medicine for a season, he, he developed a twitch because of the medicine. And as opposed to figuring out what, what the right medicine was, they took him off the medicine entirely, right? Like, okay, if there's a twitch developing, we can shift the med, right. we can change the dosage. We can prescribe a different pill to see if that also has the same adverse right. effect. But instead, they took, pulled him off the medicine. So I was so like, I'm just telling everybody, like, you got ADHD? Let me tell you what I know. Let me tell you what I read. Maybe you got ADHD. It's a good thing, y'all. It's a good thing. It's a good. And so like, I'm walking around telling people about it. And my mom's like, you ain't nothing wrong with you. You fine. Like, like leave that alone. You don't even take no medicine. I'm like, no, actually, it helps me in these ways. Mm-hmm. And the only reason that she stopped saying it is because I actually did tell her explicitly when I started taking medicine. I said, do you realize we've been talking for like an hour now? And she said, yeah. I said, you realize that I would always cut you off like 15 minutes in because I would, you would get on my nerves because you were talking too much and there were too many words and they were competing with my own thoughts. <laughs> this medicine helps me talk to you. <laughs> Oh, okay. Is that what's different? Well, you can go now. We've been talking too long. ADHD evidence. Like, <laughs> so I think for me, like that's part of what it means to remove the stigma is to be honest about where we are, not to uh, put it on a billboard, but to the extent that we're comfortable telling our own stories and highlighting our own journeys. I think it helps other people start to grapple with their own mental health. Will people look at you strange and funny and judge you as a result? Absolutely. That is still something that you have to monitor. And depending on what space you're in, that may not not be an option for you. Yeah. But for me, it's part of my story. And it's part of what makes me uniquely me. Yeah. And it's part of, yeah. I mean, if I'm leaning into my Christian theological language, it's part of how God created me. And so yeah. how do I celebrate that and embrace Hallelujah. it as opposed to running into a corner and hiding and being Ooh. like scared that you're going to judge me? Well, uh, uh, is that what you're saying that I'm doing? Sam, you do that on a daily basis. My therapist told me that people who bully were frequently bullied in their childhood. And today you've confirmed that you were bullied in your childhood. First of all, I don't bully you. And you cannot call anybody a bully, first of all. Second of all, I wish my mom would respond like who your mom did uh, and say, oh, is that why? Have you ever had a situation where you have to decide which battles you're going to choose to fight for the sake of your mental health? Absolutely. Right? For the sake. And so... 
my mom is one of those persons that I have to choose those battles. Yeah. And, you know, love her to life. And I mean, I remember when my, one of my nieces was dealing with depression. And my mom's mm. response was like, I wish she would stop saying that. And she ain't dealing with no depression. She just needs to get to go back to church. She ain't been to church in six months, you know. And and there are times that I will push. And I'll say, my, no, this is not, you know, like, and try to have this conversation in, to no avail. And so sometimes I'll be like, okay, for my own sanity, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you just talk your foolishness because I can't deal with this today. That might not be healthy, but. Uh, it actually may be the healthiest choice for you. I'm being real. Yeah. Even in the white progressive church, I worked with a pastor who said, uh, you know, if I start to feel depressed, my wife just tells me to go on retreat and everything's fine. Well, that doesn't actually deal with people who are dealing with actual depression and anxiety and mental health issues all the time. And so that's another reason why I think that we've got to talk about it, that we've got to tell our stories while also realizing when we need to not tell the story because it's bad for our mental health. So we've already said a lot and we've shared a little bit about our own journeys. And that seems like a really good spot for a break. What we do when we come back is take a moment to talk more in depth about the relationship between mental health and religious belief and or faith. I think we oftentimes hear people talk about mental health and religion as if they are diametrically opposed. And that's the only way to consider them. But there also are ways that religion, belief, faith can benefit your mental health if it's done in tandem with other resources and practices and not in ways that demonize or stigmatize seeking out those resources. So all of that and more just after the break. Come ye disconsolate where where ye languish oh my come to the mercy seat Yes, that's a good song for the day. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, go ahead and give me a holy tongue, Sam. I dreamed I was singing. My, my. This is reality. You're no longer dreaming. You see how the Lord brought your dreams into fruition. Preach it, Bishop. That's a message. That's a word. You see how the Lord brought that thing that you thought you was just dreaming about into reality? That's how God... <laughs> will change your situation. Won't he do it? Yeah, won't he will? Won't she will? Won't she will? Won't they will? <laughs> the whole Trinity. Won't they so will? You you're saying God is she? They them? I'm saying God said all pronouns matter. <laughs> So welcome back to the conversation. We are talking about mental health today and our own mental health journeys. We have each shared a little bit about our particular journeys and tried to give you a glimpse into our mental health so far. For this next part of the conversation, we want to focus in on the ways that the church has informed our perspectives on mental health. So 
Was the church a place wherein y'all felt like you were encouraged to seek out mental health resources or has it been a detriment to your mental health? Certainly wasn't helpful in my case, in my context growing up. It never made its way into sermons or studies or teachings. It was never normalized in a way to say it's so it's okay to focus on your mental health and to focus on it in a way that you seek resources outside of the church. It was never normalized in any way because I think for a lot of people in the context that I came from, it it stood in juxtaposition to the sovereignty of God to be able to handle all your problems, right? And so the church did not embrace this idea that you could respond or care for yourself and your own mental health. That had to come through the divine. That had to come through, you know, God doing that for you. I think in the Presbyterian church, we just simply haven't talked about it. And so I didn't come up with this idea like Sam is talking about that it needs to be prayed away or that that if you just get close to God, then then everything will be fine. Having said that, and having said that I in the church I served in North Carolina, I was very open about therapy. I was very open about taking antidepressants. But when my partner at the time had significant mental illness, I could not tell them. I know that there's this this assumption that you show up at church on Sunday as your best self. Nothing bad is going on. You are just there and there's no desire to really delve into just the horrible things that are going on in people's lives. And so it was, so people at the church I served didn't know how bad the situation was until there was no way they couldn't, like hospitalization and all of these things. However, once I was able to talk to folks about that, what I found was I had people who I had known for years telling me that their parents had, a parent had killed themselves or a brother had or had talked about their own struggles. And one person who said to me, well, now that I know that you're wrestling with your faith and with your mental health, I can come talk to you because I know that you're, um, you're experiencing the same thing I did. I think in some ways, the church just made us not talk about it which is different than saying that's not even worthwhile. Yeah, I would agree to the church, definitely. My church didn't talk about it, which implicitly gave us the message that it wasn't worthwhile. And I don't know what happened to me. I, I never had an aha moment, at least not in church, where somebody was like, hey, you should really take your mental health seriously. Hey, here are strategies and tools to help you take your mental health seriously. But when I was in seminary, I think it was in seminary, I was sitting in a pastoral care class and one of the professors took the text in 1 Kings chapter 19. That's the still small voice passage, you know, when God speaks and the voice wasn't in the... Go ahead and preach it, Sam. Don't you know that text? I don't read the Bible. The fire came by and the, the voice of God wasn't there. The wind came by and knocked down all of the trees and there was and the presence of God wasn't there. But it was after. Ah. Oh, where was it? Where was it? Where was it? Oh, no, you told me you don't read the Bible. You tell me. He hyping you up, Katie. He hyping you up. This is what we do in the black church. Uh, we don't know nothing that you're saying. Where was but it? we hyping you. Where was it? Oh, oh where and was it? It was in a still, small voice. Oh, I was like, I don't know what mountain he was on. <laughs> I think it was Mount Horeb, <laughs> this, wasn't it? 
No. Wow. Oh, I'm good. I just Googled it. It was Mount Horeb. So the story is about Elijah, not Elisha, if you're a Bible scholar, but Elijah, and how he was scared of Queen Jezebel, and he went and he ran away because she threatened his life. Oh my God, that's a powerful text on today. But a message came to Elijah once he ran away from his task and assignment. Come on, preacher, preach it. And the message came from an angel of the Lord, and the angel said, Elijah, what are you doing here? I mean, so I don't want to preach the text today, but I think what I'm trying to highlight is when I preach this sermon, what became abundantly clear after hearing this professor reflect on it is, man, Elijah was probably depressed. Now, we've talked about this in hyper-spiritual terms, and we focus on the still, small voice, and we focus on all of the glitz and glamour and the, you know, the theater of it all at the end of the text, but we don't focus on the fact that someone threatened Isaiah's life And that caused him to spiral into a depression. He wasn't sleeping. He wasn't eating. He was terrified for his life. And God didn't come to Elijah and say, get up, get over it. Pray about it. Shake yourself loose like Vicky Winans. No, what God says to Elijah is you need to get some food. You need to sleep. And once you've tended to your core needs, let's revisit how you feel and see what you can do now. Can you go back to that task and assignment? And so it was really scripture or looking at scripture in a playful manner, in a colorful manner and trying to figure out how do I not hyper-spiritualize this, but how do I utilize this thing that's so essential to so many people's faith to inform my own relationship to my mental health? And I think that was the starting point for me. You preached this as a mental health message? I can't decide if it was irresponsible or if it was amazing. So I think it was actually amazing, (laughs) but but I may be biased. I preached it during church, during during the church service, and the title of the sermon was Dealing with Depression. I mean, I think it's a great great, uh, take on scripture. I think think that's what we need more of in in order to normalize, you know, taking care of of yourself and also highlighting how there's evidence of this in scripture, right? Especially for those evangelical folks who's like, just pray and leave it in God's hands. No, this is, these are the instructions God gave when someone was like on the run in fear for their life. And so, yeah, I think more sermons like that have to be preached. But I do think we need more messages like that. And I think if we were able to look in the Bible and I think any story that we have hyper-spiritualized in scripture, if we look at it through the lens of what kind of mental health concerns might these individuals have, then we actually would see our own selves reflected back to us more frequently than not. And maybe it's not even mental health. Maybe it's physical health. What was happening with the woman with the issue of blood? Like, what if we talked about mm-hmm. and normalized the fact that maybe she was, I mean, she was just menstruating and she had a cycle that was happening far too regularly, far too long, far too often. And like, what does it mean for women who also wrestle with that today for, to not problematize mm-hmm. those individuals and hyper-spiritualize their mental health or physical health needs, but to use it as a source of understanding the human experience and illuminating how we are faithful in responding to those concerns. Right. And I, I like, I think of Jesus in the garden, right? He's sweating blood. Like even Jesus is sitting there in this point of, just anxiety. Anxiety. Well, I don't know. Like this place of being lost. Like this point of like there's no. I have no control over the situation anymore. This is like like you're facing death. And so it's. I mean, he, he did it theoretically with um, with conviction and trust, but he had to go back and and wrestle with that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think you can dig really deep into that. And there's a lot of stuff that Christ says on the cross that makes us question, like, how much trust? Like, my God, yeah. my God, why have you forsaken me? That's an honest prayer. 
Yeah. You know, why have you turned away from me in this in this hour? And so, yeah, yeah maybe he did it with conviction and trust, but maybe that's not as cut and dry as we want it to be, that that trust. Maybe he struggled with that. Maybe he went into it with trust and then at some point he was like, but wait a minute. Right. Why aren't you here for me in this moment? Right. I mean, because he had to be human, right? Like, like yeah. if he's human, he's got to feel all Correct. of the humanness and being executed. And how are you not, as a human, going to be calling out? Like, that's a compelling Good Friday message, right? So Jesus, in all of his humanity and embracing the human experience, had a task that he was told was divine and assigned to him to complete. And he was fully aware of his human emotions. He communicated those emotions to a deity, to his father, to his parent, his mother. And the deity doesn't necessarily respond. And is a Good Friday message that the absence of being in a community and a relationship wherein your mental health needs are taken seriously, it leads to a type of death mentally and spiritually? What does it mean to have a response either internally or externally that validates your condition and invites you just like Elijah to go to sleep and to get some food to eat or whatever other responses are important for that mental health need. I mean, I think about Lisa Weaver's work with Healing Jephthah's Daughters. This is what the podcast is all about. We have this biblical story that really has a lot of trauma baked into it. This young lady is murdered because her father makes a vow that's short-sighted and immature And she's punished for that. And Lisa sits there and unpacks just like, look at what may be the psychological trauma that Jephthah experienced when he was the son of a prostitute and his siblings, half-siblings, kick him out of the home that he lives in and says, you're not entitled to anything because you got a different mama. That's trauma. That's passed down from generation to generation. I don't do generational curses, but I think there are generational dramas that we don't tend to and we end up harming one another. So I guess what I'm trying to highlight in this portion of the conversation is even though scripture has historically been utilized in a manner to hyper-spiritualize things and perhaps keep people away from their mental health, I have found that in congregations, it's actually important that we don't come in and say, yeah, your Bibles are horrible and they're wrong and the way you're practicing your faith is stupid, but to utilize this text that people at least claim is important, even if their actions don't suggest they actually believe that, but they claim that it's important to them and utilize that important text as a teaching tool. I think that invites people on a journey in a way that's very different than telling folks that their Bible or their scriptures are stupid. Right. And and I think it's a... I mean, I don't know if it's like this in the black church. I I know that in my experience, like this showing up and being and always having your shit together, I know I've talked about that before, is another, it's just another layer to break through. Like the most authentic relationships are when we are laid bare before God, completely open and honest with your hopes and your fears and your struggles, but that requires you to know what's going on. And, but in the church today, or even in the whatever community you're in, leaders have got to be able to talk about the reality of mental illness and about the struggles, especially right now in the pandemic when so many, like we're going to be in a huge mental health crisis. I mean, we already are in the mental health crisis, right? Absolutely. I mean, so that's a helpful turn, Katie. So how has the pandemic impacted y'all's mental health? I think for me, it's provided me space to go more internal and to reflect. And and it's, it's actually given me the space, at least initially, to slow down 
and to actually be more in touch with my body and my emotions and my feelings and to cultivate that type of practice and space internally as opposed to having to move from one meeting to another or one fun event to another. But the longer that this thing has lasted, I remember I was... uh, reflecting on the murder of our brother, George Floyd, and the response to that. And the word that felt the most precise was that I'm languishing. And so I just went and I Googled languish and I was like, oh, there's a whole New York Times piece about how the word to describe what everyone is experiencing right now is languishing. And I don't know if that's a word that's familiar to people. That's why I started off saying, come ye disconsolate, because I was like, the only place that I've ever heard the word languish mentioned is in that song. How does that resonate with y'all? I think languishing is interesting. I think that everybody is either experiencing languishing or even deeper um, struggles with depression. I think it, like, I'm not sure anybody's happy. <laughs> like, I don't think anybody's feeling whole right now. There are moments of happiness. Yeah. Um, I know for yeah. me, I've been able to catch up with where I am. Like, in my pre-pandemic life, I felt like I was always on the move, either chauffeuring or going to a meeting or driving here or driving there, and I never was really caught up with where my body was. And I think Mm -hmm. that through the pandemic, I think I've been wrestling with whether or not I've been dealing with ADHD my whole life. Um, But in the process of trying to address that, I added another antidepressant. And for me, Mm -hmm. what I realized after a couple months was, oh, I still have issues with inattentiveness and all of those things related to ADHD, but I was in a horrible place and I I hadn't realized it. And I think that had also sparked me to start therapy again and, and work on some trauma stuff that I thought had already gone away. So in some ways, this has been so, so difficult and I don't need to have it have a nice bow on the end, but I do know that because of the languishing or the depression, um, at this point, I also feel like I have a plan for health um, that goes beyond right now that I'm not sure I would have had without the pandemic. So we've mentioned this a few times. I, you know, We've all talked about the fact that we're medicated for different things or either have been at one point or another. I don't want to presume what you all are comfortable enough to share here in a, on a public forum. Um, I take ADHD meds every single day because I am a better human <laughs> when I do it. And by better human, I mean, I just accept the fact that my brain is special and unique and and a gift to be cherished. Uh, so and ADHD basically means we don't have the same sort of dopamine function with a reward system that helps people focus in on tasks and or prioritize things sometimes. And so you, you, if you are someone who will walk back into a room and or let's say, let's say you were in the kitchen fixing a meal and you will walk away to use the bathroom and then come back 30 minutes later and something is burning on the stove and three of the cupboards are open, like that could be a sign that you may have ADHD because you may have gotten distracted and pulled away from things and forgot what was the priority in the moment. Listen, don't talk about cleaning the house Listen. on the weekend and you start in one room folding clothes and then you walk in the other room to get something and <laughs> you start sweeping and then you go to put Listen. the room up and you see that you got to do and by the, you just spend three hours and ain't and shit you, done. And then you, and then you <laughs> tired and you want to go take a nap. And them clothes are sitting right there on the bed because you didn't fold them. Like, 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 we can laugh about it, but I got it bad. <laughs> no, I know. But I think for me, the question in that is, how did you get to the place where you were willing, able to take medicine? Because I think that's a big fear that a lot of people have. 
Like, I don't want to get on this. I don't want to become addicted to it, especially with ADHD meds. That is a stimulant that can be addictive. And they have non-addictive medicines if you have histories of, you know, wrestling with addiction, um, living with addiction. But, I mean, how did you take that first step to opt into medicine? I was an undergrad and I was struggling so bad in school. Number one, I was the first in my family to go to college. Um, And so I really didn't have a framework for what it looked like to be successful, to study all of those things. Layered on top of that, having ADD, it was bad. Like it was bad. When Brandon talked about taking two weeks to write a sermon, like it was bad. And I was like, I need to talk to somebody. I need to get some help. And uh, I went to the clinic on campus and was diagnosed with ADD and started meds. Then there was an immediate impact when I started meds that I felt much more focused, much more able to get stuff done. And I was like, oh, this, this, this shit real. Because some people feel like some mental illness is not a real thing, right? Some diagnoses for uh, certain uh, behavioral disorders is not real. You know, that's just in your head. I've heard people say this, but you just need to focus, sit down and focus and do this, you know. And uh, let me tell you, it's real. It's real because the medication helps me, except for when it doesn't. And Brandon lets me know when that is. <laughs> and I do that in love just to name like, hey, what's happening? Are, are we are we checked in right now? Are we here? And that's not from, like, and I forget. This is how bad I am. Like, I have one time taken like two or maybe three ADHD pills in one day because I couldn't remember if I had taken it. And if, I, and, if, and if after like 30 minutes, I still can't remember and or feel the effects of the drug, I'm like, Okay, let me just take another one. You don't go count your pill bottle and see how many you had if you... I've started to do that after a couple of issues related to taking too many pills in one yeah, day. I've had to do that before yeah. too. So, I mean, I think for me, the first step to taking medicine was... I, I was laughing at maybe Katie or Katie's child because once getting the meds, it was like the meds just sat there for a long time. And my partner was like, that's actually normal for people to get a, to get a medication and to just look at it for a while and to not have a way to take it in to their lives and accept the fact that that might be their support tool for the foreseeable future. And for me, I was like, once once I'm committed to it and I'm convinced that this is going to help me, I'm like 127% in and I just do it. Like, that's how I came out. When I came out, I was like, hey, everybody, I'm gay. And I read all the blogs and all the books and talked to all my you know support system about what to do and how to do it. And I did everything so quickly. And the spiritual director I was seeing at that time was like, you may want to slow down. Like, not everybody goes this quickly. You've done a good five to six years of work in a matter of two months. <laughs> <laughs> and I was the same way with meds. I was like, let me get the right one. I'm going to take it every day. I had journals documenting what was wrong or when the medicine kicked in. But I think the key is if you are somebody who has a relationship with medicine that is more skeptical, honor where you are. We're not judging you, but I think we're trying to highlight, or at least I'm trying to highlight, I can't speak for everyone, that sometimes it is the medicine that will give you the extra boost you need. And for me, I have to acknowledge that even though once I purchased it, I took it the next day. Like I was like, can I take it today? I picked it up at three (laughs) o'clock. Am I going to be up till 3 a.m.? So I waited. That's That's I waited until the next day. But but I think I'm trying to highlight that sometimes the fear of the unknown can keep us from making choices that actually improve our mental health. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if you just take that first step, you realize it's not as scary. And then you take a second step. And so figure out what, I always ask the question, what is your most faithful next step? And so even with your mental health, wherever you are right now, figure out what that most faithful next step is And take that one step. You don't have to get all the way there tonight or tomorrow. Just take one step today. Let's take another quick break. 
And then we'll wrap up the episode with a very brief conversation about what it's looked like for us to process childhood or adult trauma. And we are only giving reflections. I want to be crystal clear. We are giving our own personal reflections. None, none of us are licensed therapists, but I think what we're trying to do is be humans reflecting on our mental health journey to do our part to remove the stigma. We're going to work with a few therapists to try to have brief conversations at the end of the next few episodes. So that is a resource with trained clinicians. If you have mental health questions, send them our way. We're eager to um, work with you in navigating your own mental health. So just to bear in mind, this is not prescriptive. This is just a descriptive conversation so that you're hearing some reflections of three humans. Just like the Bible's descriptive and not prescriptive. You're just witnessing people's testimonies about their experiences with God that doesn't have to dictate your own. But we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to talk a little bit about trauma. Hi, I'm Lisa Weaver, the host of Theolab Media's new podcast, Healing Jephthah's Daughters, a podcast for all women and all girls who live with the trauma from their relationships with their fathers. On this podcast, we'll use family systems theory, biblical criticism, and storytelling to identify liberative practices that lead to our freedom, healing, and wholeness. Join me each Wednesday for conversations with friends, colleagues, biblical scholars, and mental health practitioners who will accompany us on the journey. Healing Jephthah's Daughters is available on all platforms. Subscribe via your favorite podcast app today. And as always, my prayer for you is freedom, healing, and wholeness. So as we come to a close, I think one of the things I'm realizing about my own life is so many of the things that are mental health priorities for me, not even concerns or issues, but priorities, the things that are my priorities are deeply related to things that occurred in my childhood. And that's not always like a dramatic thing. Like I'm thinking about the fact that from the moment that we are born, we are learning social cues from our parents. Right. If our parents have a negative association with tears or with crying or with anger or with screaming or whatever those things are, they are going to respond to us in a way before our brains are fully formed, before we are even aware of those responses that signal to us the appropriateness or inappropriateness of those types of responses, right? If your parent comes and grabs you and holds you every time you cry, that's going to teach you something about what you need when you're sad or when you're hurting. If your parent says, get over it, suck it up, deal with it, man up, which is so problematic, that's going to teach you something about your emotions and how you can tend to them. And all of those things shape our mental health. So I guess my question for us to consider is, I'm not asking you to disclose any of your trauma unless you want to, but what's been important for you to learn to wrestle with that trauma and make it a part of your life and maybe even befriending it in a manner that it doesn't control you or make you get into a mental space where you feel like you are not yourself. And there are resources, whatever you want to say in that. One of the things that's been interesting about trying to learn about this generational uh, trauma and or learned behavior is the fact that my mother lives with with my daughter and me. And so my mom will say something to me and I will respond as a teenager. And then I will see my daughter react to it. And I'm like, oh, wait, this is all, um, this this has been Mm -hmm. good for therapy and for working through things. So that's part of it that I'm not sure 
I would have had the opportunity to to notice kind of generational anxiety is what I've noticed. Um, anxiety being kind of a learned response. I will say that one of the things that I'm wrestling with right now is that I have been hesitant to call some of the things that I've experienced traumatic. Mm. Like that that word is difficult for me because I have not experienced physical or sexual abuse. I have not um, watched someone killed. I have not had any family members killed in the streets. I haven't been in war. Those things feel very traumatic to me. And um, I, I have friends, I have family <laughs> who are, have a great therapist who um, are quick to call it trauma, except my therapist. She took it as a way, as an opportunity to talk about how the brain responds to trauma. And so she she was like, okay, you can use whatever language you want, but let me talk to you about what the brain does in trauma. And so that was kind of blew my mind to think about the things that I've experienced, but also even to think about the things that humans in general <laughs> experience, like your brain and how that that works. And so while I still wrestle with calling the experiences that I've had trauma, I also am aware that my brain has responded in the same way. And the therapy that is used for people who are experiencing trauma also works for me. And so um, so that might mean that I've experienced trauma, but... Well, I mean, I think the reality is it's very rare that someone goes through life and doesn't experience trauma. I mean, I'm, I just pulled up psychology today because that's been a helpful resource for me and we'll include links in the show notes as always. But trauma is a person's emotional response to a distressing experience. Right. Unlike typical hardships, traumatic events tend to be sudden and unpredictable and involve a serious threat to life and feel beyond a person's control. I mean, so like that, like if you look at just the root of the definition, it doesn't always have to be uh, something that is adverse, if you will. But I mean, and then you all have all kind of adjectival qualifiers that's listed on the link that we'll post in the show notes, but acute trauma, chronic trauma, complex trauma, secondary or vicarious trauma. And we had a, a, a friend talk to us about tertiary trauma a long time ago. Adverse childhood experiences are types of traumas. And so I think right. like when you get into the nuances of it, you realize, oh, well, when you start talking about it like that, it's probably the case that everybody's experienced trauma, but we all are ascribing our own sorts of perspectives and experiences and those of others to the word trauma. And I would say it's not a hierarchy, right? right. Just, just like I talk about with holiness, right? Like you can't be holier than thou. Like holiness is actually a pretty particular concept. Trauma is something that's particular to you. Yeah. And so you don't ever have to juxtapose that or name that in contrast to someone else's experience. The first step is probably to say, it is more likely than not that I've experienced a trauma. Right. Well, and it's helpful to think about, I think we talk about traumatic events, but like you've just described and like my therapist also talked about is that it's what your response to the action is. So it's it's what's happening internally rather than externally, although other people see the external or they don't. I think a good example for me is when I talk about a situation and I'm like, oh, this is, you know, these are the things that happen and I watch the response of other people and they're like, oh my gosh. And for me, it's like, oh, I need to wrestle with what the emotion is that I'm feeling because I'm actually just talking about this in my head. So that's something that I've noticed in myself. Yeah. Sam, what about you? I don't even know if I want to label this as church trauma. I think church is where it happened. But 
my previous or and most recent experience with the pastor where I was serving led to some traumatic experiences for me. Mm-hmm. And there's no there's no other way that I can define it because it was probably some of the worst experiences and most hurtful experiences that I have encountered in my in my existence on this earth. Yeah. And you talk to, you're talking about an an emotional response to to something like this was trauma if there was ever trauma. But it certainly didn't start with that, right? This goes back to childhood. It goes back like it it's it's a lot. And when when you really sit and think about your life and your journey, I realize that I have experienced more traumatic events than I really was aware of because I'd never been introduced to the language to really understand what it, what this was or what this meant or how it affected yeah. me. Yeah. Like it's a lot. Yeah. And it's crazy because then that affects your relationships. It affects, uh, you know, your identity. It affects so many things um, and how you relate to, to so many people in this world. And so being able to understand that as trauma, being able to understand that that's what that is, and then being able to, to work through some type of plan of care for yourself for dealing with that, I think is super important. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going into any specific details about yeah. the exact trauma, but I, I know that I've had quite a bit. Um, and I think the most recent and maybe even the most painful has been what I've experienced yeah. in the church yeah. most recently. I think one of the things that that highlights for me is that oftentimes trauma can become linked for the person who has experienced them. And so sometimes if I haven't done the work of befriending my trauma, I'm using that language intentionally. And if that sounds strange to you, stay tuned for the rest of the month and I'm sure it'll circle back around. But I'm thinking about what it means to develop some sort of relationship with that, to become familiar with it, to accept it, to transform it, whatever those words are, but I'm going to stick with befriend. Is once we've befriended it, we realize, oh, this is actually triggering this thing that actually occurred here. Mm-hmm. And it's not that this current trauma, this current traumatic experience isn't real or harmful, but it's that it's also just like this other thing that I experienced or similar to that other thing that I experienced. But that takes a long time to process. And I'm not certain that I believe that the goal is to get over your trauma. But I like the language of befriending sounds really helpful to me. And maybe that's sort of my Buddhist readings and things of this moment. But um, that seems really helpful to me. Right. I was, I was talking to a, a friend of mine and I was talking about trauma, even physically in the body. Yes. If I break my leg, it may it may affect my mobility. It may affect my my ability to carry a certain amount of weight where before it was broken, I could put 100 pounds on my shoulder and now it's about 60. My leg looks healed externally. Yeah. But the but the reality of the trauma that happened to it may never go yeah. away. That's true about our mental trauma as well as the trauma that happens to our body physically. And so, like you're saying, Brandon, the goal is not, I think realistically, the expectation that should be set is not that we get over our trauma because you can't get over I don't want to speak so definitively. Let me speak for myself. I've come to the realization that I can't just get over my trauma. This is something that will live with me for the rest of my life. I will never go back and not be uh molested as a child. I will never go back and not have the experience of the church hurt that I had. It it happened. Yes. It 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 has informed a lot of things. It has it has done 
<laughs> a lot of things. It may have hurt me in the moment. It may have helped me in the long run, but it happened and I cannot go back and undo what has happened. Now I've got to, as Brandon said, befriend that trauma, understand that trauma and make a plan for how to deal with and how to live with that trauma for the rest of my life. Yeah. Befriending the trauma is is a good language. I know that works for you, Brandon, and and I hear that that works a little bit for you, Sam, as well. For some reason, that that language has always been difficult for me. Um, but the thing that I've been doing recently, and and it relates, is this idea of parts work. And my spiritual director supervisor uses this as well as my current therapist. But this idea, not that it's not dissociative identity disorder, which is uh, understood as multiple personalities, but more of there are different parts of you. There might be um, your truest self, which is that place where you feel grounded. Um, But then uh, for me, all of a sudden, (laughs) I realized this the other day, and this is uh, over spring break, um, and is simple and doesn't get into the deepest trauma of my world, but whenever we would travel somewhere, my father would be like, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go. You know, it was all very focused. And I do the same thing when when we travel. And like, why can't people focus the same way I do? Why are they going off where they want to be? And what I realized this last time is that there's a part of me that that blocks my truest self. Like, And that part mm. of me has helped me to get places on time. It helps me to wake up in the morning and get to work mostly on time. But it also prevents me from realizing that I'm on vacation. I can take my time and I don't have to rush. And so to be able to see that and notice that was, I think, what you're talking about, Brandon. But it was I was able to say, I know what this is helping me with and has helped me with. But I also need to thank that part of me and say, you know what? I also need to be able to be with my family and enjoy this space. And so I think... That's the journey I'm on now is to figure out all these parts or Jungians call it complexes that you get in or or there's all kinds of ways that people have talked about it. But to recognize what's blocking your truest self when something gets triggered. Yeah, I mean, you'll never hear me tell people that they got to use my language. I mean, that's part of the reason that I'm always so... um, I'm press upon church folks, Christian folks particularly, that we don't need to like require father language in order to participate in this community because for some people, the language of father is harmful because fathers have done harm to those individuals. And so expanding that language yeah, is important. Yeah. So for me, I think figure out the language. And that's why I was trying to use descriptive terms. When I'm thinking about befriending, it's, it changes the um, motivation for me. If the task for me is always to get over it, to get beyond it, to move beyond it, then I'm always sort of feeling like I'm trapped in it. And and and, and there's and there's like a goal to just end the thought pattern or to end the behavior or to end the cycle. Right. Like there's a like there's a goal and a motivation that is so external and beyond me. Yep. And then that but that but because it is such an interior process, I end up doing harm to myself because I'm now beating myself up because I can't just get over it. And so the journey inward, and for me, that image of befriending means how can I let this accompany me on yeah. my way? But that's not the helpful language for everybody because sometimes it feels so terrifying to think about what it means to embrace a trauma. Right. That image is too vivid and too harmful. And and I'm not even saying hold it close and valorize it or make it sacred or hyper-spiritualize right. Right. it. I think I'm trying to indicate 
what does it mean for that to accompany you on your journey and for you to know that that's going to travel with you forever? Just like the athlete who runs track and tears their ACL and their MCL and their hamstring and all those muscles running a race, that person's not going to be running no races for a long time because their bodies are going to be conditioned in a very different way after that traumatic event. So, so wrap this thing up. What are, what are our invitations for the day? I think uh, my invitation as we wrap up talking about trauma is to really think critically about kind of some of the things that we said. As Brandon said, we're not, you know, professionals on these subjects, but it's a starting point for you to begin to think critically about some of these things. And so turn off your Tony Braxton. If you're listening to Tony Braxton talking about Unbreak My Heart. Unbreak my heart. Say love <laughs> me again. Undo this pain that you caused when you walked out the door, you know, uh, and walked out. Uncry these tears. The tears tears are cried. The tears are cried. You have to come to the realization that the heart has been broken. Mm. The the pain has been caused. The tears have been cried. Now, how do I take this experience that is a very real experience? Because we don't want to minimize it or trivialize it. How do I take this real experience? How does this inform how I live in, in this world? And how does this accompany me on the rest of my journey? Yeah, And I think that's the responsible uh, approach and conversation that we should be having to the traumas that we've experienced in our life. Turn off Mary Mary. You didn't cry your last tear yesterday. <laughs> you may cry again tomorrow and that's okay. Don't, don't judge yourself and hurt yourself. Every time yesterday come on and they start hollering at you, you can cry again. One of them voted for Trump anyway. So you ain't got to listen to them. <laughs> We're going to have to do a, a session, um, a section of the podcast where we dissect some of these song yes. lyrics uh, every, every, uh, every so often. Every few I episodes. Like yeah. Karen, what's your invitation? <laughs> I think um, two invitations. One, I think find, find a therapist of some kind to help you on your journey. I think um, therapy is good for anyone. Uh, so that's, that's the first thing. I think for me, The second thing I would say is that I think my healing didn't even begin until I was able to acknowledge how much my body was involved in it. And I think, Sam, you were talking about that a little bit earlier. Like, now I'm at a point where if my stomach starts hurting and my neck starts hurting or or I start tensing up and can't breathe very deeply, I know something's there. And so to be able to be aware of how your body might be able to tell you that you're experiencing things before you might even be able to acknowledge it. It's important. Yeah. Um, so I invite you to pay attention to how your body feels, to how your heart feels, and to how your brain is rushing or just stopping completely. I want to round this out with something that may sound a little bit more challenging, and it's not intended to sound judgmental because of my own types of traumas. (laughs) My words can come across as being judgmental when they're not intended. So I work on practicing non-judgmental open language. And so hear this from a place of love and from a place of experience and as a testimony of sorts to borrow from that religious language. There are many folks who have experienced harm at the hands of churches. And there are religious communities that are budding up around the country that espouse a more progressive and liberal doctrine, gospel, theology. And what I have realized is that a lot of times these places become spaces wherein our traumas are rehearsed and sacralized. 
And so we rehearse the trauma over and over again without ever befriending it, right? There's a difference between accepting, befriending, accompanying, there's the soul journey. There's, there's a diff, whatever the language is for you, there's a difference in doing that and rehearsing the trauma because in some ways the rehearsal of the trauma reifies it and now creates the inverse of what whatever that other community did. And they never talked about it and told you to hide it. And so now this new progressive community sacralizes it and places it at the center of everything that they do. The church is not, is rarely, is more often than not, an unhelpful place for trying to receive mental health, whether that's progressive or conservative. It can be a part of your journey, but it's not the sum of your journey. And so be wary of religious communities that invite you to rehearse your trauma without empowering you and enabling you to figure out how to befriend that and or accompany, let it become a fellow sojourner. And the last invitation is, we talk a lot about seminary on here. And Sam testified earlier that seminary for him was a helpful place for him realizing he needed to do some work on his mental health. Thanks be to God for Sam's journey. That don't mean y'all need to go to seminary. For God's <laughs> seminary sake. Seminary is <laughs> not the place to figure out your traumatic experience, Right. No, that's not why you need to go to seminary is what Brandon is trying to say. No graduate program is that place. No, not not just seminary. Don't, so so many, we we seek so many things in place of mental health, right? I'm going to improve myself and go get another degree. And I'm like, no, just stay in your current job so you can pay your bills and see your therapist. Mm -hmm. So my invitation is to be truthful and don't take a drastic step, but take your most faithful next step. Please. Thank you so much for listening. That's a wrap on today's episode. New Drill, we don't necessarily need you to rate and review the podcast if you choose to. Thank you. But what we would really appreciate is if you would share this podcast with a friend. Send them your favorite episode and let them know about the conversations that are happening on the Holy Shit Pod. And you can join the conversation by visiting theolapmedia.com. Click the link on the left-hand side of the page that'll be floating there in the pink and purple colors of the podcast art. And it'll denote that you can connect with the Holy Shit Pod and provide us with a voice message that can be a question, a shout out, or a prayer of the people. We would love to hear from you. If you don't want to connect with us in that way, send an email to holyshit at theolabmedia.com. We'll be back next week with a conversation about purity culture and its impact on our mental health. And until then, peace. Side note, I'm going to fuck Katie up because she a snitch.